Would you open God's precious holy word to Deuteronomy chapter 5? Namos. This, this actually comes from the Greek. Deuter is twice or second time. Namos is law. It's the second giving of the law in a general sense. The, word, the, book, the book of Deuteronomy. Here, at this point, well, let's backtrack a little bit. There are three uh, lectures, sermons, speeches, whatever, that Moses gives to the generation who are about to cross into the promised land. Moses cannot go. He must die. But it is incumbent upon Moses, the man of God, the only one they've known since they left Egypt, to give to them, from, from, from his perspective, the final directives and reminders, things that they must hang on to, so as not to make the mistakes that their fathers had made in the wilderness. We've noted then through four chapters or so in in the first lecture. He carries them back through the history and he notes certain things that were flaws that could be fatal that must be avoided. Now, he's giving a reminder, a review of the law itself. Even, even Christians need to carry with us the Ten Commandments to be reminded of what, of what God's perfect standard is regarding human behavior and why God has done what he has done to give us a path of atonement for sin. Well, you know, the death of Christ on the cross or all of those sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament system, doesn't, those don't mean anything unless you understand why it's happened. And it has occurred as a payment for sin that we've committed, that we're guilty of. It's, just, it's automatic because of our nature. Now, here he reviews the law, the Ten Commandments uh, for the people before they go across. So then what he does here is he is reminded, now they're about to go into a wild place. Gods and goddesses, the land replete with uh, kinds of worship and and religions that they've really never seen, never been exposed to. They have to be reminded here through the, through the repeating of the Ten Commandments that their loyalty to God must be strict and exclusive. So here it goes. He, he begins with uh, the first commandment, which is the commandment that they should have no other gods before Yahweh. Very simple. There it is. 
You shall, you shall not have the gods of others in my face or in my presence. Well, that seems fairly simple and straightforward, and it is. But there's so much to think about <clears throat> when you think of the first commandment, and some of these we'll look at now. No other gods, that's mentioned 64 times in, uh, in the Old Testament. So then there are categories in the Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, there are categories in the Bible in a divine description or giving a divine, so-called divine description. The first one is no gods. There are cases and instances where it is acknowledged that people have no gods, godless people. The second one is other gods. Now, this gets into pluralism, religious pluralism. Uh, religious pluralism is the belief that some have, many, many have, that uh, <clears throat> there's one deity, but that deity is viewed in different ways by different cultures and different ethnic groups. Uh, different nations. That was a fairly strong uh, belief in the Old Testament that uh, everybody knew there was a deity, but nations recognized him as a regional or national uh, deity. And that supreme deity could have the assistance or, or service of other sub-deities. But he was the supreme deity. Baal, for example, uh, he had his Ashtaroth and there were the Baalim, the Baals, <clears throat> but uh, there, was, there was one supreme God, Baal. Pluralism. We have that today. People say that the God of the Christians, the God of the Jews, the God of the Muslims, same God, just viewed in different ways. Of course, that's not true. And when that happens, <clears throat> that then people have uh, pluralized God uh, and they, they, one group sees God in this way, one group sees God in this way, but they all see the same God. That's not true. That's, of course, a terrible lie, a falsehood, something that uh, Satan plants in the hearts of people. There's only way, only one way that the true and living God can be approached, and that's through his Christ. He only reveals himself that way. He cannot be, he will not. He, he doesn't reveal himself in other ways because this is the perfect way that God Almighty reveals himself to his people through his son, Jesus Christ. It's impossible. Now you can say there's a deity and you can say, you know, I, I, I know he's, he's God and some say he's my buddy or he's in my hip pocket or whatever. It's, 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 um, it's a diminishing of God uh, in, in culture, societies, or in the mind of a man. But it's never that way because God is too great uh, to be absolutely and totally seen and understood. Only can we understand him by the way that he has revealed himself. So other gods 
is the second category that is seen in the scriptures of divine description, other gods. That's where they'll be. That's where they have been in Egypt and that's where they will be when they get into Canaan. Other gods. But those other gods are demons. That becomes obvious in the stricter study of the of the scriptures, uh, especially in the examination of, uh, of, of theology proper and theology general. They are, they are demon presences, demons who have possessed cultures, entire cultures, and uh, have somehow brought them into a worship of a false god. Other gods, false gods, there's no indication that there was a worship of false gods in the pre-flood world. I've really thought about that and examined it, and I can't find a definite, a definite statement that there were, there, there were, uh, there was even pluralism. There wasn't, there weren't, there wasn't a worship of false gods. It first appears after the flood at the Tower of Babel, and it is a very plain expression from those at Babel who say, let us make to ourselves our own name of deity. So they create a deity for themselves. And this is, this obviously has to be demonic. It's demonic. It's demon inspired. And so polytheism, it seems to me, properly begins at the Tower of Babel. And then when they're split up according to languages, those of various languages develop their own culture and then they create and invent their own, their own deity uh, as they see fit. People still do that today. They don't realize it, but we, not say we, especially unbelievers may say that they believe in God, but they fashion God after their own biases, a God of love. Well, who defines love? What is love? Only the Bible defines it. And it's, it's not anything close to what these people claim today, the love of God. They don't understand the love of God. They've never studied it. So they fashion a God, even today, they fashion a God according to their own biases. And this is how they continue in life and, and, uh, Hardly will discuss in, in many cases, will hardly, unless the Lord himself is calling them to himself, will hardly ever discuss the reality of the true and living God, the most high God. They have no concept of it. They don't want any concept of it. They want to fashion God according to their biases. And they don't want to even think about the concept and the doctrine of judgment and punishment. No one do that. In the Old Testament, What was important to the cultures is how they fashioned their gods. The demons knew this. We've been studying and noting that for the most part, it was was through the culture of of, uh, the importance of fertility and reproduction. And that's where Baal, that's where he fit right in. He was the god of fertility. Uh, And the Ashtaroth, his... His, his divine concubines were, were goddesses of fertility and certain terrible behaviors in an expression of worship had to come together with 
with these people in their false worship to express, uh, to express their worship toward uh, this God. Later on, it gets a little more complex in the Greek world where they, you know, they have a, if something happens, then there's a God behind it. The God of thunder, the God of lightning, the God of wine, the God of healing, the God of this, the God of that. So many gods that transfer out of the Greek system into the Roman system. The names are changed from Greek to Latin, but you still have the same uh, polytheism. And it's a, it's a, a God of war, a, a God of whatever. And that's how it sends itself into this uh, a more, a later time in history, still the same uh, error, which is polytheism, uh, but, uh, but worship of deity all the same, other gods. Third category is unknown God. Well, there's a God out there. I don't know who he is, but I, I think I appreciate him. Well, this is, of course, brought out in Acts chapter 17. Uh, Paul is on Mars Hill. Areopagus and the Areopagites are supposed to be the smartest guys in the world, and they have him because he was preaching in Athens. He was preaching Jesus Kanastasia in the Greek. He was preaching Jesus and resurrection. So to them, it was a God and his consort. They had never heard of this God and his consort. While Paul was moving through Athens, he noted that the city was littered with altars and idols, altars to this God and altars to that God. And he came across a rather intriguing altar that said to the unknown God. As it happens hundreds of years, about 600 years earlier, I think, Athens was plagued with a terrible disease and nothing was working. And so the leaders of the city called on the various priests of the temples of the pagan gods and they asked them to make sacrifices and to chant and do whatever they had to do to appease the God so that this horrible plague would be lifted. And they went through the plethora of gods that existed. And finally, one of those, one of those Greek guys had this brilliant idea, let's do this. We've exhausted every effort of every temple and known God Let's release the rest of the animals that we have and just turn them loose. And wherever they come to rest, let's, all, let's offer that animal to the unknown God. So that's what they did. The plague was quickly lifted. Interesting. When they approached a God they didn't know, things got better. Well, they never went any further than that other than to build an altar to the unknown God until Paul showed up. Paul said, I noticed that you have an altar to the unknown God. I've come to declare him to you. And he preached the gospel of Christ. So those are three categories. No gods, other gods, and unknown God. Especially as, it, as it's given in Acts chapter 17. So, today, 
people are in pursuit of their own deities, their own created deities. For example, a person is in, is in really hard times and he seeks help. So he goes to a psychic. He wants psychic counseling. You see those places with their shingles hanging out, psychic counselor. Well, they wouldn't be there if they weren't getting money, right? If, if somebody wasn't giving them some kind of attention, uh, they wouldn't even be in business. So there's, there, there are crazy ways that people seek divine help other than the true and living God. I read a, I read a thing on Facebook. Guy said, I've got to read my horoscope today. I've got to read my wife's horoscope today so that I can know what kind of day I'm going to have. <laughs> well, people seek horoscopes. There are newspapers. That thing is in there every day. It wouldn't, if it didn't have an interest, it wouldn't stay there, you know? So there are ways today that people fashion uh, deity after their biases in their personal thoughts, even today. They don't, really, they don't really, but they're seeking divine help, but not in the right place. They have, they have put some kind of other divine thought or divine help, so-called a, a false deity, in the forefront of their minds, and it's right, it's right in the face of God. It's right in the presence of God. The Israelites were to be exclusively committed and loyal to Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim. There was, there is no other God. That was a very unique thing that they carried in their culture across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. There's only one God. There is no other God. He controls it all. He's over all of it. He's over everything. There was a, I was a kid and there was a, a, a song that made it all the way to number one when I was, I was pretty young. It may have been in the early 60s or late 50s. He's got the whole world in his hands. Some of you remember that song. I'm, I'm warmed that somebody other than me, he got the whole world. Okay, so you go through that song and you listen to it. And it says, he's got the little bitty baby. In his. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He has everybody here in his hands. I think that was the last verse. It was a young girl that sang it. Maybe that's what drew my attention to it. I don't know. But she was featured on, you know, Art Linkletter. And nobody remembers Art Linkletter. Uh, okay. Hey, look at us. We got to have a sit down sometime, man. Uh, and all those other, you know, all those other old variety shows are on TV. She was featured across for about, I don't know, several months. It's a perfect reflection. God has it all. And there is no other God. So then he says to his people, 
You won't have the gods of others in my presence or in my face. The national, they're meaning, see, they're about to go in and conquer the land of Canaan, which had nations, had subdivisions in it, you know. And as they go in and conquer it, they are not to be afraid of any claim on gods or goddesses or whatever, just not to be intimidated by that at all. There are no others. I am the true living God. No one else besides me. So then, starts out with this reiteration, this, this what shall I call it? It's, um, it's a, 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 a reemphasis, a reminder. It's stronger than that, though. To the people of the exclusive loyalty that is, belongs to God from the nation, from the people. The second commandment, no images. Let's look at it. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness which is in the heavens above, earth below, or in the water beneath the earth. There is no likeness of God that we can concoct. This gives, this expresses an extraordinary, a, a very limited concept of God. You can't know him other than the way that he presents himself. So you certainly can't know him in an image. An image is lifeless. God is absolute life. Yahweh, I, he's the I am. He's always, he is always. And so he is, he is the, <laughs> he is life itself. All right, so then, you cannot express God in an image and then worship it. What happens if you do that? You're going to worship it. It's going to be specialty. It's going to be a talisman to you. It's going to be some kind of spooky thing that you think is, is good for you. You know, I always joke about how I carry a fishing sinker in my pocket and say, I feel led. I feel led. Well, there is, no, there is no talisman or object. There is no image. There is nothing we can make. How, how can we absolutely, there is, God is the creator and he creates his creation. His creation can never duplicate. It is impossible. He goes, he goes across and beyond everything that is understood, and these are man-made words, but to use the best concept we can have, he moves from infinity to infinity, from eternity to eternity. I mean, it is all within him. Everything is in him we live and move and have our being, Paul said to those Areopagites in Acts 17. There's no way that we can conceive an image of God except that God would reveal, and he is the very, ekonos, Christ, Jesus, is the very, he is the image of God, if you want to say that. That's a word, icon, icon. It's, a, it's a New Testament word. There is no other way, so you have to look to Christ. 
If you're going to get the best visible concept you can get, and it goes beyond a visible concept, it is the spiritual concept of who God is and what he does. And it is all invested in Christ by the Godhead, and this is how we, this is how we understand God. And there is no other way, and we cannot create a way to understand God. You can't carry him in your hip pocket. He doesn't sit on top of your shoulder. Um... He's not even the co-pilot. You've heard that, of course. He is, he is God. He's very God of very God. So God says, no graven image, no likeness of anything. The only thing you could do in making a, an image is to make a likeness of something that you know. You have to conjure it up in your imagination and then you carve it out of stone or, or out of wood impossible an absolute ban on images nothing so then okay look at it you should not prostrate yourself before them nor worship them i am yahweh your god a jealous god god jealous it's like his last name is jealous visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons upon the third and fourth generation of those who hate me all right now Let's go back up to the first part of verse 9. You shall not worship them. There is only one way to, to receive the expression of God and to express God, and that is through words, language. Now here's why that's important. Whatever concept I may have in my heart of God has to come from how God reveals himself. And then I can build on that and the word of God builds on that all the way through the scriptures. Now, if I have an image, I can't, you know, I'm, I can't keep changing that thing. That, that means that I, I really doubt that he has any power at all. I don't think, I, but I got to change him around. Well, see, the word doesn't change like that. But the word does expand, unlike graven images could do. So this is how this is how we understand God. He expresses, he 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 reveals himself to us, and especially through his word. That's what John 1 says. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, the word was God. All things to him came into existence. Apart from him that was made, has been made. And the word, verse 14, became flesh. The logos. Logos. This thing, this word, logos in the New Testament, is a thought. In the case of God and his relationship to man, his creation, it's a divine thought. A thought that is gathered and then expressed. And once it's expressed, it's expressed via word. And now it still stays with the one who expressed it, but now it becomes part of the one to whom it's expressed. Word. And so this bond now exists. And this, this word, this expression, reveals the knowledge, the emotion, the wisdom. It expresses as it's given... It expresses all that can be expressed 
in the giving of that word. Now, there is so much more about God that we, don't, we can't contain it. So there's, you know, but what we can contain, he expresses. And of course, it still stays with him, but now it becomes part of us. This is logos. This is how, this is how we grow in our knowledge of God, the word of God. And it's a living thing. I've said this so many times, but the word of God is alive. And as you mature in the faith, the word of God grows in your person in your life and even the same verse that you've known for so long grows in in richness of meaning and in depth and width and breadth and height and it becomes more and more important and more and greater and greater as you go and just that's just a word or a verse what about the whole scripture and so it's only by the word it is only by the word that God can be expressed received and then can grow in the life of a believer. Now he goes on, he says, I'm a jealous God. He says, I am. I am. I am Yahweh Elohim. I am Yahweh your God. Jealous God. In the Old Testament, and of course in the New, Christ and his bride, the church, There's this, this metaphorical uh, expression of God's relationship with his people, husband and wife. And so God is exclusively, by, by commitment through covenant, is exclusively committed to his people. Now he expects loyalty and faithfulness and trust from his people. Now when that exists... His people have incomparable blessings and expressions of love. And that's illustrated as well in the Old Testament through the times of obedience. But then come the times of disobedience. Sometimes we are tested. God's people are tested. Do you still trust me? Let's see how far you'll trust me. Will you always trust me? Now, here it is. If you don't trust him. He's a jealous God and the iniquity of the fathers are visited upon the sons to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. What happens? Well, it's, I know that we are not a theocracy. We're not Israel, the United States of America. But there are some comparisons that can be made with the establishment of the nation. It is a fact. And these documents and letters are recorded in history. The, the very, the originals are there. Where the people who came over uh, on, the, on the ships, they came with the absolute commitment to establish a Christian society and reach out to those who were not believers and to carry the gospel across the land. This was their, this was their joy, their hope. They plant a cross when they first get off the ship. And moving through the early part of our history, there was, you know, there was a time, a time before the Constitution, there was a time that you had to be an active church member, 
a, a Christian who had been tested in his faith before you could have public office or teach school. <laughs> how far we've gone, right? Now you think of how we've gone through life and the Lord has delivered us as a nation through so many things because we had so many faithful people. That's, that's empirically proven how faithful past generations have been. But then in recent days, in recent years and decades, we have forsaken him. I heard a speech by a very high-ranking individual who in his speech called into question the sanity of, of committed Christians and, and used words, you know, like radical and, and uh, bigotry and, and racist and all this kind of stuff. And he, he perfectly described a Bible-believing Christian in our nation, a person running for office. So then, what happens? Here's what happens. Somewhere a generation fails in teaching the next generation. That generation completely loses their generation and there's nothing but rebellion and, and in Christ rejection and Bible rejection and God rejection. Here's what happens. Those people are given over to the imaginations of their minds and the heart of a man is not pure. It is the most impure thing that exists, the heart and an imagination of a man. And so all kind of terrible things happen, happens and it, it affects the psychology of the nation. It affects the physical health of the nation. It affects the mentality of the nation. It affects the ability to reason. And so they, they lose their intelligence, their IQ, their intelligence, of course. They, they, they lose all of that. And finally, when they get to the bottom and they are so poor and depraved and enslaved, somebody finally has the brilliant idea, why don't we go back to the God of our fathers? We want that life. We don't want this life. Well, then the mercy of God kicks in, you see? But this iniquity is visited through these generations because of the failure of a particular generation that just in, increases the collapse in the next two. So here's God's response to his people's response. I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the third and fourth generations. And I perform, the, the Hebrew word is loving kindness or covenant love. You could say covenant love. said. <laughs> Covenant love to thousands of generations of those who love me. To those who keep my commandments. If we just trust God, even when times are bad, just trust God. He has a reason for it. And we're going to grow by it. And we'll emerge better than we were before. This is how, this is how God builds our trust. And he can do that because he's God. The time comes then when he says, I 
will then kick in again my covenant love to thousands of generations of those who love me and to those who keep my commandments. Mercy triumphs over iniquity. Finally, when they are God's people, they come back around, you see. God knows how to call. God knows how to make it such that now they have only one way out. That's going to happen to the Jews at the end of time. They're going to look upon the one whom they pierced, Zechariah says. They're going to finally say, you know, we've tried everything but his way. And then he comes for them in power and glory. Well, we'll stop there. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. We thank you for, for your word, for the protection that you give to us, for the security that is ours, because you're a jealous God. You look after us. You guard us, protect us. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through Jesus Christ, your only begotten son, who is our Lord and Savior. And in his name we pray. Amen.